welcome to the Benchmark Litigation U.S. Awards 2021 podcast. I'm Brittany Sharoff, Research Analyst with Benchmark Litigation Labor and Employment, and I am honored to be your host today exploring the firms and lawyers behind our recent U.S. Award winners. The Benchmark Litigation Awards are usually held in New York for our East Coast Ceremony and San Francisco for our West Coast Awards. Sadly, as we were not able to meet you all in person this year, we produced a virtual awards, which was broadcast on the Benchmark website on March 31st. If you visit our website, you can play back the whole presentation and see the full list of winners from our last year of research. One of our worthy winners this year was Sanford Heisler Sharp, a nationwide civil rights firm that walked away with two of our awards this year, Best Labor and Employment Employee Firm of the Year and Best Labor and Employment Employee Litigator of the Year won by firm founder, David Sanford. I am pleased to say that the firm joins me today. So welcome to Alexandra Harwin, a co-chair of the discrimination and harassment practice in their New York office. Felicia Gilbert, managing partner of the San Francisco office. And of course, David Sanford, chairman and founder of Sanford Heisler Sharp. David, Felicia, Alexandra, welcome. Thank you so much. We're delighted to be here and we are certainly honored to uh, receive those awards. Thank you. Well, let's get into it. Some of the cases you've been litigating have involved gender related claims against industries like big law, higher education and the oil and gas industry. David, I'd like to start with you. What is the most significant factor that results in folks coming forward with these employment litigation claims. People in the United States historically and today spend a great amount of time working. For most people, they spend more time working than they do anything else in their lives. And so work becomes really an essential part of their identity. And in being an essential part of their identity, uh, they care a lot about what they do, whether they're uh, low wage workers working in the service industry, working in a restaurant, uh, or whether they're the CEO of a company, everything and everything in between. People generally care about what they do and they identify with what they do. And the assumption built into that relationship between employer and employee is uh, really, I would characterize as a social compact. They expect recognition, they expect care and concern, they expect uh, that they will be appreciated, and fundamentally, uh, they expect to be treated fairly. And if along the way, they're not treated fairly for some reason, uh, and they feel aggrieved in the relationship, uh, they want to bring a claim. Many of those claims aren't legally cognizable, that is to say, they're not recognized in the law as something one can bring, but many are recognized as legally cognizable. And when they are and when they're compelling cases, uh, we bring them on behalf of those individuals. Thank you. That's such an interesting point about the social compound. Um, thank you for highlighting that and bringing that up. Um, Felicia, what other industries would you consider at risk for gender-related employment claims? 
So the, the primary ones or the first ones that come to mind that are at, at risk with respect to, to gender-related claims would be medicine. So this would be practicing physicians, folks working um, on the academic side of things or in administration um, in medicine, big pharma, tech, higher education, uh, academia, which would include uh, faculty, staff members, graduate students, uh, folks working at the general counsel level in academia. Um, and with respect to COVID, the industries at risk uh, where gender discrimination claims are would probably be the same um, where there have sort of been bad actors all along, um, particularly where um, women are being forced to return to work uh, prematurely, where they would have to leave their children at home without sufficient um, childcare in place, uh, manufacturing, um, hospitality, so involving travel, service industry. Um, yeah, I would say that that would be the list. That was really insightful, and I love that you included the COVID-related uh, industries that might be really affected by it. Thank you. Um, I'd like to turn a little bit to representing fellow law lawyers in employment litigation. And so, Alexandra, I'm wondering if you can speak to this a little bit. Um, the firm is well known for representing fellow lawyers in employment litigation. Is there anything unique about representing lawyers against their former law firms? To give you some context, we represent lawyers all the time. And whether lawyers are associates or counsel or partners, most can bring the same types of discrimination claims that all other corporate employees can bring, whether it's under federal or state laws. And, and most lawyers experience the same gamut of claims as employees in other uh, industries, such as sexual harassment, pay discrimination, failure to accommodate pregnancies or disabilities. Uh, but in addition to the same claims that other corporate employees can bring, lawyers who are partners can often bring a host of additional claims, such as uh, common law claims for breach of contract or breach of fiduciary duty. We have extensive experience litigating the full panoply of claims available to lawyers, and we're used to resolving those claims with the level of discretion that most of our lawyer clients want. There are some claims that can be easier to bring in law firms than in typical corporate settings, such as pay discrimination claims. That's because in most workplaces, employees only have a suspicion as to what their colleagues are earning. But in many law firms, there are open systems where equity partners can see exactly what everyone else is making. So we have many female partners who come to us not with a suspicion that they're being discriminated against, but with a certainty. And I'll add that our lawyer clients are in many ways the ideal clients to work with. Many of our lawyer clients are at the top of their game professionally and they're active partners working with us to compile evidence and present their claims. It's a real collaboration with many of our lawyer clients and something that we really value. That is really interesting, especially about the open systems. Um, I'm not sure that most people would know that. So that is a very interesting fact that makes it a very unique experience to work with other lawyers on these cases. We know that settling is part of the game, but if a case against, a, for say, a big law firm um, moves to trial, what precedents or changes would you um, hope to achieve through these actions? And I'm going to throw that at David, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, well, very few of these cases ever get to trial. And I would note that, you know, in the vast majority of cases, we resolve these matters pre-suit before anything is on the public docket, before any document is publicly announced. 
uh, I'd say from the last couple of years, we have kept track of our statistics. We have over 5,000 people reach out to us every year. We only accept between two and 3% of those individuals. So about 100 to 150 cases a year we accept out of over 5,000. And the vast majority of those cases get resolved confidentially, uh, quietly, pre-suit. We send a demand letter. Uh, we invite the other side to have a conversation about settlement. That conversation typically uh, uh, results in a one-day mediation, and that one-day mediation typically results in a settlement, uh, which is confidential. Some cases are filed. The cases that are not resolved confidentially uh, and 80 to 90 percent get resolved confidentially, 10 to 20 percent do not. Those that do not, we file. And when we file those cases, those cases, especially in the legal context where we represent lawyers, uh, generate a lot of public comment and a lot of public controversy. Um, and that's a good thing. There's a lot of public interest in these cases for a reason. And if we bring a case to trial, as we may, we have a case right now against Morrison Foster. That case is scheduled for trial uh, August 16th, and it's very likely to go to trial. And if it does go to trial, that public interest will be heightened evermore. And there will be more public comment. And as a result of the public comment and the public interest, we, we help change the narrative about what is true in big law and what is true about discrimination uh, in big law. And as a result of that, we change policies. We understand that there are a lot of female partners at AMLA 100 firms who are partners today in, and they're partners today in ways they wouldn't have been partners but for the kinds of claims we have brought. And we know that because we've been told that from men and women at those AMLA 100 firms. We know that there are women who are making more money today than they would have otherwise, but for our cases. And so uh, we understand there's a lot of interest in these cases. And as a result of that interest and that public comment, things change. And if we go to trial to answer your question, I think uh, the public interest will be heightened and things can change even more. There's still a lot more work to be done and we're in the process of doing that work. That's great. Thank you so much for answering that and um, and bringing light to some of the ways that policy can change through these cases. That's very exciting to hear. So Alexandra, um, I have a question for you. Do you anticipate any trends or increases in employment litigation, especially related to Title VII claims like race, gender, or sexual orientation? A absolutely. One thing that we're anticipating is a substantial uptick in pay discrimination cases. Federal laws like Title VII or the Equal Pay Act provide a floor. A, a level below which employers cannot fall, but they in no way provide the ceiling on protections that are available to employees. States, as we know, act as the laboratories for democracy. And over the last several years, we've seen many states, including New York, New Jersey, California, and Massachusetts, experiment in substantially expanding their pay equity laws in ways that make it substantially easier for employees to bring claims. In the past, pay 
pay discrimination cases have sometimes posed a challenge for female professionals such as lawyers or doctors because it can be hard to point to a male in their workplace whose practice is really identical to theirs. But now the laws are catching up and demanding not just equal pay for equal work, but also equal pay for work that is substantially similar. With these new developments, we would expect many more pay discrimination cases moving forward. We've also seen a sea change at the federal level with the Supreme Court recently confirming that Title VII's ban on sex discrimination also covers discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. But in many ways, this decision involves federal law catching up with the states. Many states have had laws on the books that prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. So we've been bringing those kinds of cases for many years. Thank you so much for those insights. Felicia, a question for you. Um, what are some of the cultural or societal trends that may be influencing these claims? So I think on one hand, so in terms of trends and how these, these cases are actually playing out, on one hand, um, I've seen, and I think some of my colleagues um, have seen, um, among corporate actors and the employers that, that we go up against on behalf of our clients become a bit more um, emboldened, um, possibly as a result of the previous presidential administration. Um, and it has resulted in some instances in cases where there are surprisingly overt acts of discrimination on the basis of race. Um, and, it, and gender, uh, pregnancy claims. Um, we've uh, had cases um, in the employment context involving sexual assault, um, as well as retaliation that our clients um, face sometimes after trying to complain about and report um, and get some redress for the underlying discrimination and harassment that they're experiencing. Um, so we've definitely had to be nimble and creative um, in going up against companies who maybe are have at times been a little bit more bullish. Um, on the other hand, uh, I think there's also an expanding um, and increased public awareness and social consciousness um, with respect to issues like structural racism and understanding how um, it impacts not only our educational system, but the occupational outcomes that people have and how they are then treated in the workplace um, based on sort of where people are coming from and the exposure or, or lack thereof that they've had um, to people from, from, from different groups who identify um, differently. Um, and so that has involved, um, I think, more public awareness, I would say, um, in some circles with respect to the covert manner um, in which discrimination can often manifest itself um, in the workplace. A, a lot of our work involves proving discrimination through circumstantial evidence. So I think as there is more pu public consciousness and awareness um, of how it plays out, it's not always someone to, coming to work and seeing a noose at their desk. That's often not how discrimination works. So I think as the public becomes more aware of that, um, I think there can sometimes maybe be like a trickling up effect with respect um, to how things play out in the legal process. Um, and I would say, additionally, there is a potentially increasing curiosity and understanding of intersectionality, um, that someone 
if, if someone, for example, I represent uh, black women professionals, the idea that they shouldn't have to prove their claims by saying it's all about gender or it's all about race. So I think, again, as more people become aware um, of intersectionality and how that can affect claims and how they're proven and how discrimination actually happens in the workplace, um, you know, there are going to be some interesting sort of impacts on what we do and how we do it and the results that we're able to get um, for our clients. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to intersectionality and um, some of the societal and cultural trends that we've been seeing, especially over the last year, um, and how important it is to be very aware of that um, for ourselves and for our employees and for, you know, the others around us. So um, we're coming down to the last couple of questions here. Um, we've found over the course of our research process that whistleblower and retaliation claims continue to be a trend in litigation. So David, my question to you is what are the reasons or some of the reasons for why these claims continue to show up in many actions? Just to start off, uh, in order to bring a claim of retaliation, generally speaking, three things have to be true. Uh, first, you have to engage in what's known as protected activity. So you have to speak out about, say, discrimination, or in many states, if you speak out about fraud, that's protected. Uh, it's protected in the sense that an employer can't harm you, do anything to you adverse to your employment interests as a result of your speaking out. So number one, you have to speak out. Number two, you have to suffer an adverse employment action. As, uh, so you, an adverse employment action may be a demotion or a termination uh, or a cut in responsibilities. Uh, and number three, you have to show that there's a causal relationship between the two. You have to show, in other words, that you spoke out and as a result of speaking out, you were affected negatively in this way. And unfortunately, it happens a lot in this country where people speak out in certain ways and people in power don't like it and they concoct a reason to terminate you or concoct a reason to impact you negatively in the workplace. Um, and so our burden is to show in those cases that there's a causal relationship between the two, right? There's a causal relationship between engaging in the protected activity and suffering the adverse employment action. And we hear uh, from people all over the country that that actually happens a fair amount. Um, so I don't know that it's happening more today than ever before, uh, but it's certainly something that we've always had to deal with and we continue to deal with today. Thank you. Thank you for, for uh, you know, explaining um, how those retaliation claims um, become true and become and are brought up in the litigation. So lastly, to kind of talk about what we're all experiencing right now, David, I'm curious if you can share, um, how does the firm anticipate being able to survive the pandemic? Uh, you know, it's a great question and uh, it's a complicated one uh, because if you had asked us back in March of 2020 uh, whether we would do as well as we've done in the last year with everyone working remotely, uh, we probably would have said it would have been a, a major challenge that might not work out too well. But in fact, it's worked out extremely well. Everyone has worked from home. 
we have over 50 lawyers and approximately 40 staff and they've worked out of their living room for the last year uh, plus and will do so for the next few months uh, at least depending on how things go in the future and everyone has done exceptionally well people are probably more efficient now than they have been before they don't have to commute uh, they don't have that wasted time. And we don't fly around to every hearing and every mediation and every time a judge asks to speak with us for 15 minutes. Everything is done virtually uh, via Zoom or via Teams and it's worked out exceptionally well. Uh, we had 65 mediations last year. Uh, 50 of them were done virtual uh, by, by, by Zoom. And our success rate is the same virtually as it is in person. So we've come to the conclusion that there's really no reason to go back to the past. There's no reason to do things the way we used to do things. We're going to give people the option to work from home two, three days a week. Uh, going forward, we're going to hope and, and assume that we're going to continue to do mediations and even arbitrations and potentially trials remotely going forward. We're certainly going to continue to do depositions going forward and mediations going forward in the virtual realm. So there's a lot of cost savings associated with that, but more importantly, uh, it's a real issue of quality of life. People can have a better quality of life in this world than they had before. If you don't no longer have to travel two hours, and I know Allie was coming in from Ridgewood, uh, sometimes three hours round trip, uh, Felicia lives in Oakland and she would come in from Oakland to San Francisco with that with that travel. They won't have to do that as much. It's not to say we're going to be a virtual firm. We're not. Uh, we're going to expect people to come in a few days a week. But the advantages of being able to work from home at least half time are really great from a human perspective. So we're really pleased with that and that recognition, that realization that we're able to do those things as well, if not better uh, in this way is really thanks to the pandemic. So it's one good thing that's come of the pandemic. There are many good things and uh, so many horrendous things uh, that we'll all be sad about forever. Uh, but there are some good things that have come of it, and this is one of those. Well, I'm so happy to hear that the firm has adapted and uh, a big relief that, you know, it's working out so wonderfully um, and everyone is uh, just a little less stressed, hopefully. Um, and if I ever get my law degree, I'll be knocking on your door, hopefully, to work three days a week in the office and relax at home for the rest of the week, if you don't mind. <laughs> have you join us. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, it's been a it has been a really rough year out there, but we're very much looking forward to doing this in person in the future. This brings our discussion to an end. David, Felicia, Alexandra, thank you so much for sharing your work with our audience and me today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Before we go, David, any last minute thoughts you'd like to leave us with today? I want to thank you. I want to thank Benchmark for the awards. Uh, everyone in our firm works really hard and a lot of the work is thankless. So it's really great to get that recognition uh, from an esteemed group like Benchmark. Uh, and so on behalf of the entire firm, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Like I said at the start, you can find more details on all of our award winners on the website. For me, it's goodbye, and I look forward to seeing you all soon. 
so long. Bye. Bye.